0: So welcome, everyone. <clears throat> welcome. Tonight, I'm going to talk about uh, relax, observe, allow, and respond. Uh, although your homeworks, uh, I didn't put the last R on there <laughs> to the zero to the in of your homework, I did online. So you can see how they all kind of go together if you wish, but uh, I, I call this the quiet roar of the Dharma. Clever, huh? <laughs> R-O-A-R. Quiet roar. And as I was sitting, I was just feeling uh, the deep abiding uh, contentment of sitting. I hope you were as well. Where it's just, it's so simple. You know, for once we're truly laying down the burden of what, of our responsibilities, of our burdens, of our tensions. We're just simply living presence. That's all we're doing. And I think that's why its appeal is so strong for many of us, because how many times during the day do we actually access uh, the, the laying down of ourselves, so to speak, of our own need to do something and simply abide without any call to be a particular way or to show up in a particular presentation. Simply that deep, relaxed contentment that is our abiding truth. And I just want people to recognize the simplicity of this practice, that it's not complicated. It's not uh, full of of uh, technique unless we want it to be. It's just a simple abiding in presence, that's all. I was uh, a monk in Thailand and staying at a monastery that was fairly well known so often traveling uh, monks would stop in that monastery and stay there. And there was a, a Tibetan monk who Uh, was residing there and he came over to my little hut to see me and we had some tea together and so I asked him what kind of practice, what he he did uh, for practice and uh, he started telling me uh, the incredible practices he was doing. Uh, Numerous mantras and uh, offerings of gratitude and... uh, resuscitate res- reciting uh, imaging and I mean it was it took about a half an hour for him to tell me everything <laughs> and I I was genuinely impressed that anybody could do all those things <laughs> and then he asked me he says and what do you do <laughs> And I, I was caught off guard because I really didn't, I, I didn't have a comeback that was anywhere near equivalent, right? And so I said, you know, I, I try to see things the way they are, period. <laughs> <laughs> and he didn't, he looked at me like I was some kind of, like, what, what, what practice is that? And this is not a judgment about what he was doing at all I'm sure it has complete relevance for the his lineage for his tradition and within the circumstances of his practice but I was so relieved that I could say it in a sentence because somehow the essence of the practice has to be that simple anything that we do that makes it more complex you can be assured you are distancing yourself from the very truth that the practice is meant to convey. Because when you take yourself out of the equation of your practice, it's very simple. It's the sense of me and all of my needs and trying to figure out all the different ways I should progress and move and grow that makes it so seem so complex and, and difficult. Now these words, relax, observe, allow, and respond, I want us to sort of posture, bring the physical and mental posture of these words as I speak into the room with you. So that you really get a sense of how the practice lines up. These words are chosen very specifically and very carefully so that they don't create a self-enhancing practice. Oftentimes, no matter where we are on the journey, there are times of of turmoil, of questioning, of doubt, of suspicion that we're not doing it correct, of correctly, and a confusion to that where we're caught up in a state of mind and we're we're sort of, you just can't quite figure out what direction we're headed or why we're even doing anything at all. And what I would suggest is to use these four words as guidelines to addressing every difficulty in practice you ever have. Select the one that feels like it's the most comfortable fit given the problem that arises. Relax. Relax. Observe, allow, and respond. There's no struggle in any of those words. There is a laying down of the burden, not a picking up of more contentiousness. Where do we feel any conflict or control in those words? where is the the need to act on our behalf the need to obstruct or defend or pretend or imagine the need to be ambitious in our effort the need to strive to gain or acquire What we begin to see, that as we begin to live those words, you see more. Those words enhance the ability to see. And the equation comes to mind, okay, so the less I do, the more I see. The more I do, the less I see, but the more accomplished I feel. So I get a sense. Okay, so this this thing has a, this is this is a journey where where I back in to the truth. I don't pursue it. I don't lean into it. I have to let this thing find me. It takes us out of the equation of our own practice. Now you can see why I made this a fundamental talk, a foundation. Because if you look at how much time we spend doing just the opposite in our sitting meditation, you'll see how off-centered we are from the true meaning and direction it is supposed to take. So I'd like to just go through these words if I can, and just again, as I begin to speak about them, see if you can posture physically and mentally, posture these words into your system as you're listening. so let's take relax the first R of the quiet roar of the Dharma now it's interesting that we know the word but we only allow ourselves to go so far into relaxation before we halt the process we're not sure we trust that word in fact What you'll find in each of these words is a limitation or a doubt associated with it. You'll feel it and you'll break, put on the brakes for that word. Because if you go back and listen to the talk on surrender and you listen to the talk on faith, you'll find that these words, each of them, are activities of surrender and faith. So there's an arresting quality, a defensiveness that comes up when we begin to relax. Because what happens when we relax is that we have to drop our guard because keeping our guard up is attention, is a sense of self-protection. The reason we feel ourselves so strongly is because of the defenses that we have created that separates ourselves from the rest of the world. And that's how we know ourselves from the rest of the world. Because we boundaried ourselves from the rest of the world. So when we relax in truth, the tension that we have formed the boundary with We come to that place where we can let go of it but I don't know if I trust it, do we? See, it's always the same. There's always, often, not always, a fear element that arises in relationship to moving with any word that takes the control away from me and eventually will bring fear of that complete loss of control but relaxation is such a friendly word I mean we go on vacation to relax that's what we do supposedly in our off time it's such a welcoming word I love the place where I grip the armchair because I'm sliding off somewhere that I've had many experiences in my practice where I have I moved beyond the defenses in with each of these words and completely lost all sense of, of perspective or definition within that moment and came back many times horrified when it was the friendliest and most welcoming experience you can imagine. I simply didn't trust it. I didn't trust that it could be safe. So it's important to understand where we place the edges of our practice. Because we do it. We set the parameters. And to feel where it is that you can relax no more enough of this relaxation stuff, I need to be back in control. So much of our life is willfully moving with control rather than relaxation. Control we trust. Why? Because I'm in command, command central. And we say, I just don't have, I wish I had more time to relax. Even if we had more time to relax, we wouldn't allow ourselves to do so. People plan for their retirement, thinking, oh, when I retire, it'll be so nice. I will just relax. And they continue to carry out the same functional tension that they had when they worked. Retirement is perhaps the hardest pursuit. Because relaxation is the most difficult quality to really allow ourselves a complete ease. Now the near enemy of relaxation is indulgence. So when we think of relaxation, we think of kind of, or some of us think, Sort of the perfect temperature of a jacuzzi bath, with a glass of whatever you fill in the blank, the music of your choice, and right, which is indulgence, which is just kind of losing ourselves in the pleasures. But relaxation doesn't doesn't that's that's the enemy, the near enemy of relaxation. Well the the relaxation we're talking about is simply the release of the tension of our life. It's both physical and it's psychic. There's a psychic relaxation. The way I'm teaching breath in the first beginning class that we had last night, I say go to your breath and then when you lose focus on your breath and you wake up to the fact that you've been thinking, don't go right back to your breath. If you do so, you'll carry the attitude of incompetency that you feel coming back to your breath. Instead of doing that, go to the sense of relaxation and dispel that attitude and then let the breath find you from the sense of relaxation. Relaxation should be forefront in our life, in our practice, our spiritual life. Instead, we make it into a complicated issue. What's easier than this simple settling back and releasing the tension? So does relaxation mean the loss of awareness? It does if we mean indulgence, but actually it's the enhancing of the ability to be aware because what confiscates that ability is tension. Where we're tense, we're not aware at all. We're struggling. And where we're struggling, we're trying to get something or, or we're fantasizing something or desiring something or resisting something that blocks the awareness entirely. But true relaxation, since it's the easing of those very boundaries, makes us perforated, porous, so that light pours in and awareness is extraordinarily accessible. One mental resistance we have to relaxation is we think it's passive. I love this one because the mind will just keep coming up with reasons why it can't relax. I don't have time to relax, that's the most common. But it's also, it's too passive. I'm, or, I'm a more active person. Think what you're saying when you say that you don't have time to relax, that it's too passive. I said, if I could just tape what you just said and play it back to you, I, Is it really passivity? When we're conscious? When we allow ourselves to do the very thing that allows consciousness to flourish? It's as if we're saying that the best activity is one when I'm unconscious. And so I can step on people's feet and not care. relaxation is conscious living. Is it being lazy? This is another one. You know, if I'm relaxed, my mother would say, you know, I knew you'd never be worth anything. (laughs) But is it laziness? Is when you're sitting is acutely attentive. Attentive. Is that lazy? In fact, you, can, you feel more alive in that moment of awareness. <coughs> it's anything but lazy. It is the complete opposite of whatever we mean by the word lazy, no matter what definition we put on it. When you feel that sense of presence. Does relaxation necessarily refer to sleep or lethargy? Not at all. Although we have to relax in order to sleep, those two are paired because of our nightly ritual. But it can easily be paired with acute attention. So that relaxation doesn't mean that I'm on my way to falling asleep. That's just the conditioned reference we give it because that's what we do at night. So relaxation is this tremendous asset but it seems so, okay, next, what's the next one? Come on, you're, we've got three more to get to. <laughs> Let's move on here. I mean, well, I know what relaxation is. What I want you to get a sense of is how I'm asking you to be receptive in body and mind. Through all of these words, there is a receptivity. There is a receiving, not a leaning. These four words take the leaning out of living. If you're relaxed, you're not leaning into anything. You're simply receptive, available. It's all there in the first instructions. We say, rest your attention. Rest your attention on your breath. Don't grab it. That's leaning. Just rest your attention on your breath. Okay, so the second word is observe. Now let me go to the near-enemy of observe right away, because we need to clear this up. The near-enemy of observe, which is just awareness, just letting awareness see what's there, is opinionation. And all of opinionation's subtle derivatives, like judgment and condemnation, and all of that that's in the background of what we're observing. But that's not the observation itself. The observation itself doesn't contain that. We add that. That's an addition to the observation. That's what our mind does within the observation. It comments about it. And we listen to the comment, and the more we listen to the comment, the less we observe. because we become you and I as a sense of me becomes formed within the comments when you can comment upon something you are well-defined within that commentation the observation just literally observing the observation doesn't contain any definition of you so guess what we do when we sit down To observe, which is the bare reality of what the practice is meant to do. We call it even bare attention, bare, not B-A-R, like we're out, you know, ravaging the forest. This is B-A-R-E, which means without anything. So that. Sense of quiet observation, quiet observation, restful observation. You can see how relaxation feeds the very dimension of observation. Since observation is at rest, it's not something that needs to be cultivated or procured. It's simply at rest. And so when we're at rest through relaxation, then observation is available. So it's very important to understand that the awareness that is the presence, that is the observation, is different than the mind that comments upon it. And if we need to fine-tune our listening, we need to fine-tune our listening towards what we're saying within the observation. that we feel is so factual and true about what it is that we see. If we keep that going, you can see that you're seeing, the seeing, the observing itself, will contain the opinionation. And you won't really be seeing, you'll be commenting upon. And that's the wrong emphasis. But if we can observe also what we're saying within the observation, the comments itself, then the whole thing is safe. So we have to be very quiet in our practice to be able to hear the comments that we're saying in relationship to what it is that's occurring. Add nothing to this experience. If you want to take a line that promotes this particular quality of observation, simply say to yourself from time to time, add nothing to this moment. Add nothing to it. The area of fear comes in in observation because in observation, again, we don't feel protected. We feel protected in our comments, in our defensiveness, and how we line up to what we see but we don't feel within the scene any defense mechanism at all working. It's just coming at us. And so oftentimes we harbor a sense of very quiet noise in the background so that we'll have the ground of our own position to take in relationship to whatever it is we're observing to make sure whatever it is that we're observing doesn't become too frightening. And that's what the comments often signify, is how you're going to handle what it is that you're seeing if it gets more intense. Again, you see, this is a system of surrender and faith. I hope by now you've realized that. That this is not a product of your own making. It would be useless if it were. Or I will say it would have limited use. It would have no spiritual use. But it may have some personal use for you. we also begin to notice that as the observation contains less comment, commentation, we begin to feel more sensitive. We begin to feel more refined sensitivity. More details come at us. And the awareness grows proportional to our quietude, because the comments are no longer directing the observation. The observation isn't coming from a position. It comes from 360. It's like seeing is seeing us. Rather than we're seeing something, we're being seen. Okay, so let's go to the third we have relax observe and allow now here again i want to bring forth the near enemy very quickly the near enemy of allowance is enmeshed boundaries because especially uh, women have often given their their truth away their own solidity of of honesty their own honesty their own stability and so there there can be and not just in women there can be a sense of not really knowing who you are when you're with somebody else because you concede the point of your being to that other person and so you don't have a ground under you in which you recognize the yes and no of life. You depend upon circumstances or the other person for that yes or no. Let me be real clear that allowance has nothing to do with that at all. Allowance, allowing the experience at hand is really a manifestation of love and love has a very clear no associated with it when there's any crossing of a boundary so the practice of that the willingness to speak and say that no and say no, no, that's not okay that you're doing that is not outside the allowance that we are talking about now. But allowance is really the willingness, now that I've said that prelude, to let something in, to let it in without restriction, just to like come and get me, you know? What are you gonna do? What's an emotion going to do to you except force you or allow you to feel it? I mean, that's the most it has. At one point I realized that, and I thought, okay. Because I was so tense inside myself, thinking the mo- emotions were so personal. I said, so what? And, and then I kept hearing my teacher say, just, just don't resist it, just allow it in. And I thought, okay, so if I do that, what's going to happen? Why am I afraid? And I thought, okay, I'm going to have to feel it. And I couldn't come up with another reason why not, <laughs> why I kept it out, except that I didn't want to feel it. And when I realized that that was so silly, that it had nothing to do with anything, I mean, I can feel things, for God's sake, then that was a true movement in a wise direction. I mean, what's any experience going to do to you? It's not always going to be pleasant, but the capacity to hold the experience is within us all. And as we begin to move into our practice and we begin to see that the fluidity, that there's a fluid quality to awareness, that it isn't stuck, it's not frozen, it's not like something has to ram itself in. It just has this beautiful water-like quality that it absorbs and surrounds each thing. And that the hardness that I drive or try to drive things into it, like this determination, I'm going to force myself to look at this, it has nothing at all to do with the allowance that we're talking about. That's hardness, it's fixed, it's like two objects battling one another for attention. That's not what this is about. This is the willingness just to experience, just to drop our argument towards experience. Let it in. Give it space. Isn't that the act of kindness itself? We wonder why kindness seems so distant to us it's usually around this word we feel so shaped and defined that for us to allow something is a force of effort now the other quality that we have to recognize in ourselves if we're ever going to allow our internal world to be completely released to be what it is, listen carefully, is that there's nothing wrong with us. And now some of you are saying, well, he doesn't even know me. (laughs) If he knew me, he wouldn't say that. No, it's because it's true of anyone and everyone. See, from our, the content of our life, there's a lot wrong with you because content is limited. If you're this way, then you have only, then you can't be that. And so you're always one side or the other of, on the road. So from a content perspective, if you define yourself through your material makeup, what states of mind then you're going to be underprivileged. You're going to be insufficient. How can you not be? But here I would suggest, I'm going to give you a couple of questions that reframe the issue of allowance. And I hope people are working with this quality as I speak, even if you think it's like so basic dharma, I mean, why doesn't he get to something? Where are you if you think that? I'm talking about non-separation. If you think that's basic, well, then I should be listening to you. What is missing here and now? Whenever we think there's something wrong with us, which is most of the time, if you look at your state of consciousness, your psyche, much of the time, we are in a state of insufficiency. So if you just operate with yourself in the moment, then you will look in the moment for whatever the moment provides that will make you sufficient. But let's move it farther away. Let's include yourself and the moment within the time frame of sufficiency by asking, what is missing here and now? Because the here and now is broader than just my presence in the here and now, isn't it? So my presence can't just be around the sense of me, it has to expand. And when it expands, you will find sufficiency, guaranteed. It's only when we narrowly look at the content of me in the here and now that I'm insufficient. In fact, I don't even think I'm sufficient enough to be here. I'm a mistake here that context of looking at ourselves from a very limited perspective of what the here and now contains and that we are attempting to get into the here and now as if we could ever be anywhere else. Just what's missing here? What's missing in this moment? and really look and see. See if you can find something that's out of place. Or you can frame it this way. How is this moment insufficient? Well, it's too hot. No, you're too hot. The moment is completely sufficiently temperatured. See, so says, start broadening out what you consider yourself in. Don't rope yourself off from everything. Let your questions be as big as the presence that's here. Respond. Relax, observe, allow, and respond. For years I've talked about relax, observe, and allow. And I thought, it's crazy. Where's the activity? No wonder people think this is a passive. The response brings back the action. But here's the point it is not from you it is within the moment that response occurs as we allow the moment to be held in this greater sense then actions will arise within that moment that will be completely appropriate to what is being observed in that clear comprehensive way that presence is. So responding can't happen without observation, without allowance, and without a deep sense of relaxation. And then there is this natural, organic really, movement as a part of the whole of what's occurring. Some of you may have experienced that because it's not mystical in in some mysterious way or esoteric. Some of you, if you're just listening to somebody, you'll you'll say something and you won't even... It's a completely appropriate thing that you just said, but you would have never said it had you thought and reflected upon the way we normally do in any conversation. It just comes out somehow. And we don't have any idea where that came from. And that's the response that came from, came within the moment, not from the moment. From the moment means I pondered the moment and gave a response. This is within the flow of those things, and that spontaneity is not unknown to probably anyone here in the room. But we don't trust it. It seems, well, that was, wow, that was interesting, but let me go back and think about that. He sees, again, it's the lack of faith. We think this is up to us. We think we are the defining element here. Us, me, and my commentary. This is the defining element. No, this is the limiting element. This is the limiting element. This is not what's going to build your practice. This is what's going to diminish your presence. I'm trying. (laughs) Sometimes you can see it in a basketball game, or you know, where the person, the team, is just in this enormous flow, and they're just operating spontaneously within the appropriate responses of their teammates, and then you can see one of them, egoically, sort of rise in. And you can see the whole thing gets like, like a tire with a flat wheel. You see, we have to back away from this. The faith is the faith that something else moves us forward. Faith is moving the whole universe forward. I mean it's all moving. And it certainly isn't me who's making it move, or you. What's making it move? Star systems are being created. Galaxies are colliding. To turn ourselves over to something we sense, but can never prove, because proof requires an objective form, and this will not be an objective form that's why it's, it's dismissed by scientists or anyone else who are just looking for the objective proof of something it will be dismissed but we sense it and we know it we sense it and we know it and all relax, observe, allow, and response ever was or ever meant to do which covers our complete spiritual practice from A to Z was an activity of faith. That's all we ever do. That's all spiritual practice was ever meant to do was to take us so that we see that we're a hindrance, not a help and to release the tendencies to reassert ourselves moment after moment in some kind of spiritual direction. And we see that. And most of us have to play bumper cars for much of our spiritual practice as we bruise ourselves into the learning about that fact and abiding within it. Just this. Just this simple. Just this easy. Just this. Why be so pomp and full of ourselves? Okay. Can we sit for a minute or two? Okay, if there are are any comments or questions. Yes, just a second, I just would like to ask that uh, unless you are catching a bus or a ferry or something that we stay for the duration of our time together, it's very distracting, at least it is for me as 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 a speaker to see people get up and move and just, if we just settle just, it allows a different sense of community. Okay, yes, sir? Um, while you were talking about observing, yes. uh, you said instead of us seeing something, we are being seen. Yes. And was that S-E-E-N or S-E-E-I-N-G? Can you say more about that? Yes, the question is, uh, when I mentioned about observation, that at some point you realize you are being seen rather than you are seeing. And that's a crucial uh, moment in practice that comes to many, many people, everyone, if they practice sincerely, in which the sense of you being the, uh, you, know, the, the center of the process of observation and looking. Uh, and that you're creating the very seeing that you are uh, attributing to the awareness, uh, switches. And which time you realize that you are not the uh, maker of this seeing, rather, you're one of the things that's being seen. By some, by, I mean, I'm not going to put any word on it, but seeing is life itself. Life is seeing itself. That's what's happening in our meditation, is that life is seeing itself. We are conduits for life to see itself. And many people can have mystical experiences, actually switch that figure ground around so that they realize that. My God, this isn't coming from me. It's really amazing. When you experience it, it's like, it's like the bottom of your world just fell out. And not in a dramatic or awful sense, but like, oh my God. I mean, it's all coming in this way instead of going out this way, you see. And that disorientation gets regrouped So, and a tremendous hole in the ego is blasted so that it's not, never assumes the center position anymore because it realizes it's not, It's it's, it's been seen. And so, but what leads to that, and I don't want to get too much into the experience of it, but what leads to that are these four words. Because in each of these four words, the sense of you is diminishing as the scene increases. And at some point, the veil gets so thin that the scene is reversed in your scene. Do you see? Or (laughs) do you not see? (laughs) Yes. me. And so how do you, but then this concept of losing the ego and the self and this flow that's beyond the individual self, I don't know if, how to sort of understand those two things. Okay, so the question has to do with how do you use your skill set and and be, and be a part of the moment rather than uh, egoically using that skill set to... Dominate the moment or control the moment. And really, it's the skill set doesn't go away. What you've learned, you've learned. I mean, the basketball skills didn't go away from that team, they were enhanced really and used appropriately. But when there's an image associated with that skill set, like there often is with uh, healthcare workers, because the person is in such need, they want you to be to hold the image of someone that can help them. And so their desperation is to see your image of somebody that can provide that help. Uh, so th- the way that lines up often is often very authoritative and often very it doesn't look very connected. It looks very disconnected. So, But the question I would ask is, is there a way to be just as efficient using what's appropriate and not carrying the image that leads to the separation of you and the patient. So that the movement or the complaints, or the, the movement of your skill are in complete flow with the complaints that are being generated, right? So that the, right? I mean, with, with thought, thought is not, it's not that, that, that that's outside of the moment. It's just that we make ourselves outside of the moment when we think but it can be a natural recurrence within the moment of the activity of that fulfillment and clear comprehension of the moment so that it just, just you just here's what you want you first you have to genuinely care about the person right that's the conduit in which this can pass if you want to be a doctor or a nurse then your caring is going to get stuck because you're not so interested in that. You're interested in the image you're presenting, which blocks the caring, you see. So, so the first way to get yourself in line is to really feel the caring and the pain and the compassion associated with this person and what they're, what they're saying. And then let things flow from that caring in a very kind of normal way, rather than the image. Rachel. Uh, the response component, yeah. do you think that perhaps there, that's where wisdom arises? I mean, so I, I was wondering if you were really talking right. about the relationship between the response and the wisdom. Right. Uh, response, uh, she says, is that the place where wisdom arises? Well, wisdom in this case is not, uh, it's, it's a living wisdom. It's not a an assertion of wisdom. That is, the whole thing is wise, you might say. The whole moment when it is unboundaried lives wisdom. So what does that, what does that, what does that mean? That means that uh, you know, if I see that a response is needed and I sit back and think, what's the wise thing to do? And there's that kind of reflective, but it's also a drawback from the very spontaneity that the moment is asking, I will certainly come up with probably some kind of wise thing to say or do, but it'll be just a little bit non-spontaneous, a little bit off, and, but people might say, oh, that was wise, I think. It was just felt a little weird, but that's okay. <laughs> that's when you're trying to be wise, okay? When you're not trying to be wise or you're not trying to be a nurse, wisdom is. It's, what, it's the movement of, of the seeing. The wisdom is the movement of the seeing. S-E-E-I-N-G. It's the movement of the seeing. Doesn't that make sense? So you you go, whoa. You see, when the Buddha was talking about clear comprehension, again, that's my definition, is that when we take the moment as the... As the, as the context of our action, rather than me as the context and you and the, and the separation of objects as the context, then that clear comprehension abides as itself, not as separate things within the moment. And then the wisdom is that, it's the living of that. I've learned to shut up. It's taken me a while. I keep thinking, okay, so they're looking like they don't understand. And I also realized that I cannot add anything more than what I said to satisfy that quizzical look. So I have learned to shut up. (laughs) This is where I'm learning. (laughs) Time for one more if there's another... Yes. Um, so when you said something about having faith, that it's safe? Yes. So what exactly do you mean by safe? Like, like safe, okay. So what do I mean by safe? See, that's the... I mean, we lead with our mistrust. I mean, really, we've all been scarred. And so it's. so you think, okay, am I going to open myself up again to, you know, some... Misbehavior here, either on my part, where I have to keep myself contained so I don't become, you know, let myself become animal in all this, or, or if I trust that person, you know, if I just release the sense of holding this person in abeyance to myself, is that going to lead to all kinds of manipulation? Okay, so that's why the mind keeps self-protecting because it doesn't feel safe. Here is when we forget about the discernment that's inherent in awareness. Awareness sees, and it also, it doesn't see and without understanding, it sees with understanding. And it's, oh, this, it uses the mind. Discernment, here's a better, discernment sees and uses the mind and its experience to act appropriately or to discourage action. But that isn't boundary separating. Okay, so here again I see see a quizzical look. (laughs) And I cannot, there's nothing else I can say about that because these are living experiences. These are not explanations of how to manage myself in a moment. These are what it looks like when you're not managing yourself. Okay, so that's why this whole, that's why there's only so much I can say about it. And that's good enough. (laughs) Thank you. Thank you.